Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have Jim Campbell, a radio host and journalist based in Greenwich, Connecticut, who has a nationally syndicated business affairs show called Business Talk with Jim Campbell. He also hosts another show, Forensic Talk, that dives into the world of financial crimes. It's probably not a surprise to learn that Jim and I are friends, and that he has interviewed me for both of his shows. Today we turn the tables, and Jim the interviewer becomes Jim the guest as we talk about his book, Madoff Talks, uncovering the untold story behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history. Jim's book will be published next year, and he is now putting the finishing touches on his multi-year dialogue with Bernie Madoff while in prison, Bernie's wife Ruth Madoff, and Bernie's late son Andrew Madoff as well as government investigators, attorneys, witnesses, and most importantly, the victims. While Jim has called over 400 pages of emails with Bernie Madoff and presents Madoff's words verbatim, he never accepts any of it at face value. Jim investigates the truth behind the man, the family, the fraud, and the systemic breakdown of the SEC, banks, and every watchdog that had the obligation and opportunity to uncover and stop the fraud before more people got hurt, but failed. The Bernie Madoff story was and remains one of the biggest tales of corruption and greed that Wall Street has ever known, and certainly the largest Ponzi scheme in history. And we have an inside look right here today. So coming up, Madoff Talks with our guest, Jim Campbell on White Collar Week. I hope you'll join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Welcome to White Collar Week. We have a friend of mine on tonight, Jim Campbell. And this is kind of uh, turning the tables because Jim has interviewed me for several of his shows um, many times, probably five or six times. Um, he's a uh, radio host in Greenwich, but he's also a nationally syndicated uh, business radio host. And he has on his show incredible people. Jim, I have no idea how you get those guests on your show, but I'm honored to be among them. And uh, Jim is writing a new book, which is uh, due to come out next year, called Madoff Talks. And um, of course, it's a very intriguing topic, especially since um, we're all uh, in the uh, New York metro area, and uh, Bernie Madoff was a big, big story, and probably still is. So, um, Jim, welcome to White Collar Week. It's so I'm glad to, to be here, and it is a switch for me to be on the other side of the mic, so I'm looking forward to this. Thanks yeah, yeah, you know, you know, it's possible that you can actually run this on your show as well. We so are going to, yes. It's so interesting. It's so interesting, um, Jim. I, th I think the way we should go here is let let's learn a little bit about you, um, some of your background, um, you know, where you grew up, and what and how you came into being a, uh, a journalist, and um, from there we can kind of get into what. In, Freed you enough to devote, obviously, a lot of your life, a big portion of your life, to uh, researching Bernie Madoff. Is that, is that good for you? 
Yeah, thank you very much. And as I, as I said, I appreciate the opportunity. Madoff Talks, uncovering the truth behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history. So we're, we're kind of excited about it. And in fact, uh, writing your first book is a brutal experience. And I am within the finish line. It's in my sight. Uh, next Friday, August 7th, I will turn in uh, the manuscript. And I had written 150,000 words, which McGraw Hill, McGraw Hill felt, felt was 50,000 too many. And so I have been in the uh, process of trying to figure out how to make all those cuts and everything. So it's an interesting process. It's like running a marathon, um, not how you'd, uh, how you'd expect uh, the whole thing to go, but it ends up, you know, it's a lot of fun. It took me a lot of years, obviously, because I had to establish the relationship with, uh, with uh, Madoff. But um, to go back to me a little bit, it's, it's, a, um, it's an interesting thing, you know, how I ended up uh, doing this. And I should say our other show is uh, Forensic Talk, which is also syndicated on some stations. And um, as I say, often business and crime are uh, interrelated, as, you've, uh, as you know, actually, yourself, too. Um, that's how I make my living, Jim. <laughs> yeah, we, we've had Jeff on both shows. So that's it's right. that it, it, it works out uh, works out. It works out well. And by the way, I must say that um, nobody works harder than you and you know how to build niches and obviously you know how to turn around your life. So that's all very inspirational too. You should do a uh, autobiography. I guess uh, uh, it, it would be uh, fascinating. I think you have written something, right? Yeah, but we'll, 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 we'll talk about that next time. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, you know, how did I get in this business? Because it is interesting in the sense that I don't know how it happened almost. I was, uh, I went to business school after Tufts at Dartmouth and just intended to work in the business uh, world my whole life. And in fact, I went to IBM right out of, uh, right out of Tuck in uh, 1979, where I met my wife at uh, IBM. She's the only thing that I kept out of IBM. In fact, uh, um, she's still working there uh, even. And um, I did some other jobs over, over time, some entrepreneurial, some back into the corporate world. And um, how this emerged radio is that um, I had a vending business and I heard, uh, so I would hear going out to see customers um, talk radio all the time. Yeah. And, you know, I listened to it and I said, there's no show that is more objective, that presents facts, that prevents, uh, presents both sides, that isn't ideologically driven. Mm. And um, it just used to kind of uh, drive me nuts. And then I hear there's this thing called the Connecticut uh, school of Broadcasting, right. and um, my wife is the one that can make instant decisions. I kind of procrastinate. I told her about it, and I said, you know, maybe I should go to a class sometime. What do you think I should do? It. She says, right now, and uh, I did. I went right away uh, to the next class, and timing ended up being perfect because um, I was the only guy in the class that had any interest in business, and it was the 2008 financial crash, hmm. and so I come out of that and, you know, nobody really understood, including me, until I studied it, what actually happened. What were collateralized uh, debt obligations and derivatives and credit default swaps? And how did Wall Street totally implode? And how did all of a sudden the mortgage business collapse and people's houses and people's IRAs? And so I did a show starting off a lot of the episodes were on various components, Bear Stearns, Citibank, um, Lehman Brothers, um, AIG. And, uh, and the whole crisis. And we went through it over and over in every different angle and everything. And it kind of grew uh, from that. I started coming out of um, uh, 
uh, Connecticut School of Broadcasting, I wanted to get some practice somewhere. And it turns out that Yale University uh, has a really uh, tremendous uh, radio station and, and facilities and an AM station that is number one in rhythm and blues in New Haven, uh, a pretty for-profit station. And they allow two community members a year to join the station and have a show. And the rest, mm -hmm. obviously, are students at Yale. And they let me come on. And that's where I kind of learned my chops. I, uh, I liked it. They liked me so much that the board allowed me to extend. You're only allowed to stay for like two years. And they allowed me to basically extend uh, as long as I wanted to. And then the, the next step came when, um, you know, I'm from Greenwich. And um, the Greenwich station um, had a need. And Jeff Weber is the, um, uh, was the station manager then. At the same time, he was the national manager of the Business Talk um, radio network, which was syndicated over 300 stations at the time. And he um, brought me to the WGCH, and then he let me syndicate. And um, so suddenly I was somehow got into radio, somehow got into Yale uh, radio station, WIBC, then WGCH, where I ended up becoming assistant news director under Tony Savino, and then um, Business uh, business Talk with Jim Campbell went on the uh, syndicated uh, route. And I, I pride myself in people often saying uh, it's the best interview they've had. And that's not a reflection of me. It's a reflection of the fact that I do prep and I read the books. And people, they're always thrilled when I can ask a question where it's obvious I've read the book. Mm -hmm. And it allows them, it brings them out. And, you know, if you're on um, NBC, the Today Show or CNBC, those guys don't have time to read the books. No, and they've of course got five, not. five minutes to do the interviews. Mm -hmm. So it's like they're one shot to be able uh, to get an in-depth interview. And they enjoy it. I really enjoy it. And, um, you know, my first big interview, I was the first guy to get an interview with Elliot Spitzer after he was uh, ousted and resigned as the governor of New York. Wow. And when that happened, um, the amount of web internet hits around that scandal at that time was the biggest in the history of the internet. And then, of course, he went radio silent. Yeah. And a guy that had written a book on him, uh, an investigative reporter from Fortune, had been to Princeton with him, and Spitzer cooperated because he was hoping to come back to politics. Yeah, of course. And, and he said um, to him afterwards, you're looking to do this, you know, Jim does long-form interviews. And he did the first interview with me. That's he, let me, he let me, and by the way, a brilliant guy. He would have been the first Jewish president uh, in the U.S. Uh, history if he had not imploded. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. kind of a sad story. But, yeah. you know, he, I asked him uh, every question, and uh, he's a combative type A type of guy. Mm -hmm. He actually, we were doing the show live then, and I called them because I wanted to make sure I'd get them, you know. It, it kind of nerve-wracking live. You yeah. hope they call. Mm -hmm. Well, I couldn't even dial him before he was calling in saying, well, I'm ready. Where are you? I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> well, well, he would, he, he was under a, a lot of pressure to tell his side of the story. I'm sure it, it was a, it was a very lopsided, difficult yeah. time for him and his family. That's for sure. And let me tell you, his family, uh, his wife and his kids are outstanding people. Yeah. Beautiful. People. I'll tell you the sad thing about Elliot and, and you could relate to this probably because you've been able to do it. If you have that big a fall, you have to humble yourself. You have to say, okay, this is what I got to do to learn. This is what I got to do to change. And you really have to go down almost right to the ground. Exactly. It's like a drug addiction, right? Until you totally give in. 
and he never really was able to do that. Yeah, it's, it was just too much. So if you notice, his comebacks didn't work. Right, and um, his marriage fell apart, and he continued to do kind of dumb things uh, for a guy that's utterly brilliant. Yeah, and um, I liked him, and he yeah. stayed in touch with me, and you know, he'd often respond right away if I, you know, sure. he did a show. He got a show on I think CNN or something, right, mm -hmm. with a woman. Yeah. And I thought he was really obnoxious. He was interrupting her. He's just too type A, right? So I would text him uh, during the show and say, Elliot, stop it. You know, uh, this is this is a medium of calm. And, and you've got to be able to have a conversation with her and, and not just talk over her and, and, and whatever. And he listened sometimes and most of the time probably didn't. Anyway, as you can see, it's all sort of um, unplanned and everything because I was a business guy and everything. But I, you know, I like this. I thought about going into politics a little bit, and um, my experience in, in in Greenwich, it wasn't good. That there is just, to be blunt, a lot of lying to you. Um, you know, Greenwich is a closed system, RTC and DTC. Sure. And I didn't like the whole process, and I feel totally free in radio to do whatever I want, to present whatever I want, and I feel, you know, more unburdened. And I have to tell you, the final thing is that the Warren Buffett's my hero. And Warren Buffett really views his platform as a didactic platform, which is a teaching platform. Yeah, yeah. The, the making billions of dollars give him, gives him credibility. Well, I wanted to do this in a similar type of education vein, which is if I could go in and teach, right? But this, I could get a wider audience. And if people don't understand what was going on in the financial crisis or don't understand this or that, that maybe give them a, a, a independent and objective and fact-based approach, almost like a teaching thing, but it's got to be entertainment. It's got to be interesting. You've got to have yeah. guests like yourself that have really uh, compelling stories. So that's a little bit about about me. Probably not as exciting as your life, but what the heck. Well, I, I definitely wanted to, you to give some background. And w what I find interesting is that you're, obviously you're a, um, a staple in Greenwich. You're someone who everybody knows in Greenwich. And Greenwich is a tough town. And... Uh, it's people who are um, uh, wealthy, entitled. It's probably a little more diverse than people know. Yeah. But, but there are people who are staunchly Republican and staunchly Democrat, and to, and to kind of, and 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 they could be Republican and liberal. I mean, there's a lot of uh, people who believe uh, in um, social justice and have liberal values, but it doesn't necessarily align with their politics. And uh, so you and I both lived in Greenwich, you for, I guess, your whole life, really, more most of your life. And um, so our paths crossed, and, um, but um, Bernie Madoff has Greenwich ties, too. I think one of his sons lived in Greenwich, I, I think. I think and, uh, Andrew had a summer house here, and uh, Ruth, his wife, ended up here. Yeah, exactly. After, after the whole thing went down, she actually moved in with her sister in Florida. Which in and of itself is interesting because her sister and her sister's husband were bankrupted by Bernie. So um, mm. obviously, if they, felt, if they felt Ruth was involved in that, they probably wouldn't have invited her uh, to come uh, come live with them. But he, they, she did make the decision to move to Greenwich, and that, and that is um, you know coincidental to the book as well. Because I got to know her. Sure. Um, I don't know if you want to switch to Madoff, but uh, I'll tell you how. Um, uh, again, just like radio came out of the blue. Madoff came out of the blue in the sense that I was doing an interview with a woman named Lori Sandell, who wrote the only book that Andrew and his fiance Catherine Cooper, 
uh, sorry, Catherine Hooper, yeah. um, cooperated with. And the night before I interviewed her, um, she said, if you want to do some background prep, I will connect you with Andy Madoff, Andrew Madoff. And um, so I get, I call, and Andrew's not obviously going to come on the air because he's got lawsuits up at the zoo and everything. Yeah, of course. But he talked off the record. He answered every question I asked. I told them bluntly, I said, you bought a condo for three million bucks just months before this thing went down. That money was obviously not your money. It was other people's money. It was Ponzi money. Shouldn't you be giving that money back um, to the SIPC trustee who was going around recovering money? Yeah. He said, absolutely. Without even pausing. And he said, the only reason I haven't done it yet is he's suing us for every dime I have. And so we, we have to play that out because I earned some legitimate money and I, you know, et cetera. Anyway, I said, well, you know, I'm doing the interview tomorrow. Uh, I've talked to Diana Enriquez, who wrote the first Madoff book and used herself as Madoff's biographer. She was a New York Times financial reporter. And um, she and I both said we hadn't seen evidence that they were, the were, kids were involved. At this point, everybody assumed the kids were involved. That's Andrew and Mark. And that Ruth must have known. So I told them, I don't, I, don't, I haven't seen evidence yet of it. And, you know, I'm going to say that on the air tomorrow. And he says, well, I'm going to listen then and see if you're a person of your word. So he actually listened. And then the next, and the next day we're talking and he says, oh, you know, Ruth is moving to Greenwich. Uh, my mother's moving to old Greenwich to be exact. Yep. And I said, well, you know, I'll take her to lunch because no one's going to even want to talk to her in old Greenwich, right? At this, at this point in time, he said, okay. So we set up a lunch. It's in December. We go to the uh, beach house on, uh, on Sound Beach Avenue in Old Greenwich. And um, she's a very attractive woman, 75 years old, looks great. She arrives in sunglasses, and it's the middle of December. And she doesn't take them off in the restaurant. Yeah. And uh, so she's obviously skittish about being seen. And because she's uh, her face is obviously at that point very well recognized. Yeah. Anyway, she took the glasses off. She ate a salad, a Caesar salad, like she hadn't been fed. I mean, it was just, and I found her to be totally, totally open, totally uh, honest. We had, uh, it felt like instant chemistry. And then we're walking out and I say, Ruth, can I have a picture of us? She stops, freezes. You're wired, aren't you? And she thought I was a media guy <laughs> and had taped the whole interview under the table and, um, and did not allow me to take the picture. Yeah. Um, I had to talk. I had to tell Andrew that I, you know, that I had not done that and and, and whatever. But anyway, over the course of several um, years, uh, we had regular lunches, and she got we got to be very close. And she's the one that introduced me to Bernie, because mm -hmm. um, Bernie uh, Andrew wasn't talking to Bernie, and Bernie still loved Andrew and everything. So when uh, Ruth connected me, Ruth was having very little to do with him at that point, but she connected me. And, uh, and I told him that what was he was he in prison yet? Was he in prison? He was in prison in, in, in Butler, North Carolina, right. medium security prison. Mm -hmm. And the, we were connected over this prison um, email system, which has to be approved by the warden. And yeah. Cor uh, Corlings. I, and, Ber and Bertie has to accept it, obviously. Yeah. Cor and anyway, Bertie. Um, so I said, you know, Bertie, I'm going to um, get the truth out of you or, or, or allow you to talk and allow you to explain your side. And then I'm going to vet it, obviously. And, uh, but I'm only going to do the truth. And, you know, if a book comes out of it, um, that's what we'll do. And he, and he said, I, I will accept those terms because both Ruth and Andrew said you're sincere and all that kind of stuff. So that's how it started. We ended up with 400 pages communications and, um, brilliant total recall. Um, 
charismatic, um, low-key, uh, really, really kind of an, ama an amazing guy. Now, of course, all I got for those 400 pages was his side of the story, his perspective, um, a lot of a lot of detail, a lot of information or whatever. And then I said, well, Bernie, now I'm going to take a time out and if I can see if anybody's interested in buying the book. And we had trouble selling it uh, initially. And I got a new agent um, who ended up being able to sell it within inside of a week signed mm -hmm. contract and had other interests from Simon and Suster, Random House and McGraw-Hill signed very quickly. But that was by then several years after. And I had to go vet the other side of the story, right? I couldn't print sure. a whole book as if it was the truth and people will find out uh, when, when the book uh, is out, how much of what Bernie told me ends up being the truth. And um, it's not necessarily a huge percentage. So, but Jim, in, in order to have this email correspondence with him, um, he must've been aware and you must've been aware that people are other than the two of you are reading the emails. Yes. So, so was he holding back at all, or was no, he... No, and I, I should also supplement. I He wrote me long six, seven, eight-page, single-spaced, handwritten letters, beautiful penmanship, and uh, which were also included. And um, an interesting story about that, um, he wrote to Andy and the fiancé who I just told you about, and she gave it to me, a one sentence letter saying andy uh and Catherine, i'm so very sorry and dad not even love but that's what he wrote an apology apology mm. the same which obviously i didn't know about until she gave me several years later the same time he's apologizing to his son he's writing a guy he does not know seven page single spaced um basically um say mea culpa because it wasn't but his side of the story yeah which actually shows you you know where where his mind uh you know uh mind was at now i'll say the um the prison wa uh, warden was a little was obnoxious to be honest he he blocked me visiting him he blocked us emailing after a while saying that i was a security risk and um and he wouldn't, I appealed it, he turned me down, and I finally said, okay, I, I, I interview and I know our our senators um, in Connecticut, and one of them's on the Judiciary Committee, yeah. oversees the Department of Justice, and I'm going to go right to them, and magic, it was turned back on instantly. Mm -hmm. But um, I didn't be, I didn't get as much as I wanted, uh, just because the uh, uh, warden uh, blocked me. But if you, if you read the stuff that Bernie sent, uh, he, he was not uh, holding back. Uh, uh, in in any way, and they didn't censor him in any way that I know of. They didn't block any of his letters. They didn't change anything. You know. So, so Jim, wh what was your overall impression? I mean, let's kind of start there. I mean, this uh, was he a uh, um, a brilliant guy gone wrong? Was he a sociopath? Was he? Um, I mean. The, there's, there's almost nobody in the middle. Everybody's very polarized about their view of Bernie Madoff. So now you've got him up close, and is he trying to seduce you? Is he trying to be straightforward? Like, what's that all about? Uh, interesting, interesting point. You know, uh, I interviewed a fraud, uh, a, a woman that's an expert on um, Wall Street fraud, uh, white-collar fraud, and involved in the Madoff story in the sense that she evaluated him. And she said that uh he viewed me 
he must have viewed me as his self-appointed appointed guardian of his reputation. In other words, I was going to help rehabilitate him uh, in, in his mind. Uh, he had another goal, of course, too, which is he wanted to restore the reputation of his sons and Ruth, right? Mm. So in his mind, he wanted to restore his reputation and their reputation. Um, now, was he a sociopath? It's really an interesting thing about him is that he gets involved in a Ponzi scheme, right? And the basic story he told me, which, by the way, he hasn't really told um, outside of me very much, was that he's running this business. And, and, and people will find out in the book, he was an incredibly successful um, Wall Street guy. He built the NASDAQ system, um, which is essentially integrating uh, the exchanges and the uh, markets for off o OTC stocks and non off New York Stock Exchange stocks, hugely impressive, uh, broke the monopoly of the New York Stock Exchange, uh, became one of the lead brokers for what you call discount brokerage firms like Schwab mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, of TD Trade, all that kind of stuff. Um, so he's here he is, he's built a great business, right? So the logical story that he tells you does seem logical, which is I got into, in trouble, I got in a bad trade. I made a classic gambler's mistake. I'll double down and I'll get, I'll pay it off. So I'll do a Ponzi for a bit of time and fix everything. Right. And that makes sense. It's, you know, a dumb sense or illegal sense or a bad mistake, but at least makes sense. I am, as I unravel the whole story, that doesn't end up being the truth. Mm. The, the truth is, um, and people will get all the details out of the book. He was actually building at the same, the, the middle, the, the market making business, right? Which is what he was in essentially putting, buying stocks as a middleman, um, was not only completely honest, it was way above the Wall Street norm for ethics. Mm -hmm. Customers were put first. There was no front running, which is rampant on Wall Street. Yeah. And, um, he fought internally to his compliance. There was to be no infractions whatsoever. Any infraction were reporting to the SEC right away. Okay. So this is coming out of this guy's head, built it, brilliant, architected, and totally honest. The same time he's running a Ponzi scheme two floors down below since, since basically the business was started. And now it is unfathomable. You'll see my sort of analysis on how I put it together. The book uh, ends with the, uh, the chapter before the end, putting Bernie on the couch, essentially. And you can already see this is fascinating because it would have been a lot easier to say he got himself in trouble, got into a Ponzi scheme, blah, 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 right? Or he's a complete sociopath and, you know, psychopath and happened. But he ran a legitimate business. He was incredibly generous to his employees, uh, ended up not being some of his own money. But he would, he would pay for his employees' honeymoons. He'd pay for medical bills. He ran the firm as a family. He had his sons running. Uh, what became uh, the what we call the 19th floor, the market making clean business, and the Ponzi business was on the 17th floor behind locked doors that his own sons, who ran the major business, didn't even have access to. So I don't know, you know, how a guy's mind, the criminal mind, uh, could work. And he was so brilliant that he had a firm of say 250 people. And he had the guys that were working on the 17th floor that were involved in the Ponzi scheme. There's not a single person in the entire business who knew he was running a Ponzi scheme. And these were guys working for 40 years there. That, that must have required 
an incredible amount of energy. You know, that's that's a great point. You know, I would talk to um, uh, the forensic guys, the detectives came in and unraveled the whole thing, right? which is really cool. There's a whole section on, on how they reverse engineered Madoff's brain, as I call it. And we both, we will both sit around and say, Jesus, this guy's so brilliant. He could have been Bill Gates. And, and he was, in a sense, Bill Gates on Wall Street. The, the, the extent, the cover-up, the details, every angle covered, no stone left unturned. It's just, it's exhausting, exhausting. digesting what he did. And you ask yourself why. Let me tell you another thing. His business at Pete uh, was in demand. The Wall Street firms were buying the market making and the specialist firms. And his firm was potentially worth $3 billion, right? Excluding the Ponzi scheme. Mm. $3 billion. But he couldn't sell it because the Ponzi scheme was part of the same legal structure, right? Yeah. So due diligence would have unraveled that as, as opposed to if it was in a special or separate um, subsidiary. So he ran a business worth $3 billion that he couldn't realize the value of because he was cheating in part of it. That he didn't need to be cheating at. So he was stuck. I mean, once he once it's that entangled, there's no uh, elegant way out. And um, I guess it's somewhere in his mind um, he thought that the only thing he could do was make it bigger. Um, because he couldn't figure out he couldn't figure out how to make it smaller and get out. Yeah, he couldn't figure out how to get out. He couldn't. He didn't have the courage to do it. And. Um, well, I'll just throw one more psychological thing at you that's, that's mind-boggling. Um, a guy who runs a Ponzi scheme is putting all the money in his own pocket. He he was ex- he had his big four investors, as he called them, and I come to call them in the book. One of them he made seven times richer than himself. Mm. Now try to fathom that. He ran the Ponzi scheme. He took on all the Ill- illegalities, and he he made somebody else. Seven times more than he than than he made, and that number is seven billion dollars. Is 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 that the guy who lives in who lived in Florida and he passed away and they discorded? Yeah, it's the, the guy who drowned in, drowned in a swimming pool. A guy named Jeffrey Pickhower. Jeffrey, exactly. And, and, and they, what, you and know, they disgorged the money. Real, real sleaze bag. But they disgorged the money from his widow, right? It wasn't wasn't that what happened? They just scores seven point two billion from his widow, and he was probably worth nine billion. Wow! So he he wasn't left penniless. Um, um. So basically, he had huge leverage over Madoff, and it's not generally understood because Madoff is viewed as the Wizard of Oz, right behind the curtain, who did all this stuff and was the bad guy, made all the money, stole all the money, and in fact, he had a legitimate business. And he had investors he made richer than he than, than he were who were essentially extorting and blackmailing him. Yeah, Makes for a good story, by the way. You know that that's not strange in the world of white collar um, in some ways because people know. I mean, employees know sometimes, and and just uh, um, the 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 spinning of the plates just becomes so exhausting, and yeah. um, and that. A lot of people, when they're caught, um, they're relieved because there's no more looking over their shoulder. I mean, they may not, they may be afraid of what's in front of them, but they're not running anymore. That's, you know, that's, that's really interesting because um, uh, I, I said you're actually a great person to be able to talk about this with because that's exactly what happened. 
at the end when the financial crisis was on and he was running out of cash, right? Uh, he could have kept it going by soliciting a little, some more money. He was having a real tough time getting anywhere, but he could have kept it going. And then he could have, um, if, if he just, if he pulled it down, he could have delayed going to jail for at least a year or two by playing all the defense moves. Mm -hmm. But he basically was exhausted mentally, um, physically, and he wanted it over. And in fact, I asked his attorney, I asked Bernie too, I said, is he more relieved in prison than, you know, when he was sitting up on the, you know, off 55th Street on the Upper East Side in the Lipstick Building, and he was trying to keep this thing going, and he's the only guy in the whole friggin' world who knew exactly what was going on, every component yeah. of it. The book opens, it's, it's the fun opening book. The book opens with Bernie apparently having a nervous breakdown in his office yeah. the day before he's arrested. And then you can, it, we call, I call it the fall of Bernie, and we go through the whole thing. His sons were there, his brother, the, the Ruth, FBI, SEC, all that stuff is in the first chapter, and then we go from there. Wow. The, um, much of a white-collar crime, at least insider trading, let's just use insider trading as an example. Um, some people like to refer to it as a victimless crime. And um, I, don't, I don't really want to get into the, um, the, the, uh, the philosophy of what is or isn't a victimless crime, but one of the hallmarks of the, of the Madoff case was that there were many, many victims and people's lives were changed uh, irrevocably and forever. And um, some of them in Greenwich and some of them all over the world. And, and some of them were um, philanthropies and Jewish philanthropies. He was, uh, he was, he had cult-like status or um, within the Jewish community. And so there were people who on paper th um, were worth a lot of money, some of them fortunes, and were deriving income that they didn't know was part of a Ponzi scheme. And now they're on the proverbial breadline. They can't support themselves anymore. So this was a very victimed situation. So how did he feel about having hurt so many people? <laughs> That's also a very good question. Uh, he'll start off saying how bad he feels, right? And then he would detour very quickly into showing um, very little remorse. In fact, he was, he felt that he was at the mercy of the insatiable greed of these people who wanted returns um, all the time, always positive, and um, that he couldn't, he felt he couldn't say no to. He feels that one of his things, as he's a people pleaser, he wanted to be the go-to guy everywhere. He wanted the go-to guy in his family, the go-to guy in his firm. And so he has this vision, um, as, as you probably know, that a lot of narcissistic people have. Sure. Our president, you know, you hear our president all the time saying, I'm victimized, the media, and all this kind of stuff. He, you know, Bernie, there's a lot of that with, uh, a lot of that with Bernie. The book, we also will have some uh, stories of uh, victims who committed suicide and, um, or, you know, were on the breadline, as you talked about. Uh, Bernie would never accept that. He would say, yeah, I hear all this stuff that people are living out of garbage bins or, you know, um, and, uh, not true. And, you know, that, that kind of thing. He, he has, um, you know, he's got obviously some genuine remorse. He obviously feels very bad that he had a son commit suicide and another son died slowly from cancer. And Andrew felt that 
Bernie killed them both, and uh, one quickly and one slowly. And um, but you know, you see this. I guess you may know more sociopaths or psychopaths than I do. Certainly, he's obviously got a lot of that criteria in him. And remorse is not part of uh, it's not a huge part of their um, psyche for whatever reason, lack of empathy or whatever. He's very adamant. You mentioned that these folks took profits out of there. They, um, he always allowed instant redemptions. You, you could get your money out. And he says a lot of folks took it out almost as income over 30, 40 years, right? And so therefore, they made a lot of money. They went after them only for the last six years, and so they made a lot of money. And those were legitimate profits, um, you know, which is not true. But anyway, so that he felt that they made a lot of money. Now, the, the truth is that a lot of these folks were not rich, uh, as, the, as the perception is. There was a lot of anti-Semitic uh, on the Internet after this happened, a lot of anti-Semitic and you're rich and you deserve, with you know, what happened to you. A lot of these guys were middle class folks who had been sending Bernie money for 40 years as their life savings. So maybe they built up to 300, 400, $500,000, right? Mm -hmm. And they were way, and, and, and they were maybe 70 years old. So they weren't going to be able to go back in the job uh, market and boom, uh, uh, they lost everything. Now to make it worth, if you understand what the, um, the trustee did what was, well, if you, um, Jeff took out more money than you put in, you're a net winner. And guess what? Uh, that money was not real money. It was not your money. Even though you do nothing about it, you need to give that back. Yeah. And then we're going to give it to the guy over here who didn't ever, ever, ever took any money out. He was a net loser. So here you have a guy who's lost all his money and he's being called by the government a net winner and is having to scourge, to disgorge money that there's no reason why we even have it anymore, right? Yeah. And so the, the government sidestepped their own responsibility and we can go into that if you want it. But, um, and, and had, Made off Peter, pay made off Paul, and um, so some of these guys got victimized twice, and um, and some of these guys, you know, had to go work in WalMarts at eighty-five years old, yeah. seventy-five years old, you know, um, and you know, we'll we'll have a story in the book. Uh, colonel uh, Willard Foxton was a British um, colonel in the army who fought in every war that Britain was involved in from the two thousands through the sevens, right? Mm -hmm. That's the Balkans, that's Afghanistan, that's Korea. It just goes on and on, right? And he'd heard a couple of years before he was due to retire about this uh, fund. And he thought, you know, it was, he'd heard good things about it. A lot of Jewish friends said it was a good deal. Um, and he assumed that Bernie was well diversified, right? So he went in through one of these feeder funds, and we can talk about those if, uh, if you want, and lost all his money, right, three weeks after he retired after his 40-year military career. Wow. Two months after that, he blew his brains out in a park, oh. in, a park in London. So oh. sad, you know, sad story. And left literally with, with a negative overdraft at Barclays Bank of negative 3,999 pounds, which is one pound below where they cut you off. That's what he what, had left. What, do you think that the, uh, the scale of the harm was just too big for Bernie to fathom, I mean, uh, it's it's indescribable how many people and the, and the level of the harm, um, and and for a guy who probably had um, uh, a uh, um, the kind of psychiatric and psychological issues he had, it it, it just to accept 
responsibility for that magnitude w would have um, w would have destroyed him. So he would do anything he could to prop up this belief system. That uh, does that make sense? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons he has no insight into himself, right? Which is, I don't think, atypical from especially action-oriented um, executives. But he was told by his prison psychiatrist, and clearly, if you look at the way he organized and structured the business, that he had unbelievable powers of compartmentalization, mm. right? Which then comes with denial and delusion, and you know, yeah. and they, they, he was told that it was equivalent to being in, in wartime where you're out getting shot you know shot at and you compartmentalize the stress and everything so that you can function mm -hmm. and that he apparently had that so he was able to just block put this parts in you know these things in different parts of his mind i guess and function and then he felt as i said a lot of bitterness towards the greed what he saw as greed the feeder funds everybody demanding more money and for some reason he couldn't say no you know and or stop it or i can't produce 10 percent with the markets down 30 percent with a strategy that looks like it's copying the market which by the way gets to some points as to why this thing could have been hidden so long it was so obviously too good to be true yeah when you, you designed a strategy that was really 90 percent correlated to the market and performed at about six percent correlation so that's that's basically as they call as as a whistleblower one of the three told me that's considered not a market-driven uh, rate of return, which is Wall Street's speak for fraud. <laughs> so, so this is so this is a guy who sold these incredible, perhaps unbelievable returns to uh, um, to a lot of average people and a lot of right. non-average people and right. through feeder funds and also right. directly, and then he resented them for the returns that he himself promised. Yes, yes, yes. And by the way, this is another thing that, why would you do this? If you came into his shop, he would say, okay, Jeff, uh, you're going to make 11%. He would put it on the uh, portfolio thing, and it was your benchmark. And this is before January 1st. And by December 31st, by magic, Jeff has made 11%. And you wonder who would ever do that? And why, why would you ever believe that? By the way, another part of his strategy that was smart is you were talking about these unbelievable returns. Actually, in the in the final you know years, he was he wasn't earning he wasn't delivering much more than the general overall market average of nine percent. This is the time hedge funds were making 30, 25, You know, so it didn't look outrageous. What was outrageous was the smoothness. You can't you know there was never any down there was never down period. You, so, you know what you know you know what a Wall Street um, stock. Uh, graph looks like right yeah this his was a straight line from the bottom 45 degrees angle right up to the top no one has ever seen a performance of a fund that looks like that a straight line straight up 45 degrees same every year so it's really attractive to people who can't absorb risk they viewed it as risk-free as opposed to putting money into hedge funds or something else where you know you're going to ride the volatility. Yeah. This, this is Bernie. Bernie Madoff himself is blue chip. So you can count you know, on his, her. His nickname was the Jewish T-Bill. Oh, that's, well, that makes sense. Like the government is, is the most, you know, 
full faith and obligation of the government treasury bills. He was the Jewish T-bill. By the way, he, he, he lost $10 million for my uh, alma mater, Tufts University's pension mm. fund. How, how did he feel about um, his son's deaths? I mean, was he empathetic? Was he caring? Did he, did he understand that he had a part in that? Maybe, or, maybe, yeah. or, or did he feel badly about it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting story that uh, there's a talk of, well, actually, you know this guy. Um, the Harvard professor of uh, business ethics um, interviewed Bernie in prison and taped him surreptitiously, which was against Bureau of Prison you, Policy. But this is an ethics professor. Eugene, but the interesting, the Eugene, interesting thing, Eugene Saltis, right? Yes, yes. The interesting thing about this is he wrote in his book, Bernie thought he was talking about a case, you know, case study. And he got on and he said, you know, um, Marcus, I think it was... Uh, it was either, you know, it was Andy. Andy had just passed away, right, from uh, cancer. And he started to bring it up, and he said, Bernie rather quickly moved it into talking about interest rates. So he wrote, um, no empathy. You know, this guy's obviously a psycho kind of guy, right? So um, I asked Bernie about it. And, you know, Bernie said, first off, he didn't know he was being taped. And secondly, that he was put on suicide watch by the prison, that he did not go out of his cell other than to have um, food. Um, for two week period after Ruth told them that Andrew had died. So um, either Saltes overread that um, as well as misrepresenting kind of what he was doing, or Bernie was lying to me. I, I don't think Bernie, uh, I don't think Bernie was lying. Now, he probably can't express, you know, um, himself very well. So he, you know, he went, may have moved the topic off that, but he said, Jim, I, I was on a suicide watch after, uh, after Andrew, um, um, you know, killed himself. He was very blunt about Andy, that, you know, Andy was, um, what did, how did he put it? Always, always, um, always opinionated, seldom right kind of thing, you know, and he'd say, no, Jim, I'm just, you know, you know, he was, uh, uh, by the way, Andrew Madoff was, is really the person that opened the whole family up to me. So I, sure. I owe him a lot of, a lot of credit for that. I found him to be a person of high character. Mm -hmm. When he was dying, he was under all these different kind of experimental things. And he was in, um, he had a select group of blog people that he was sending pictures of himself wired up and everything and giving sort of a state of the dress. He let me be in on that blog. So I was, I was kind of watching the end of his life. And, you, you and I, I, you and I communicated after um, Soltis wrote that book, and you know, I, I had some specific problems with that book and made them known. In fact, I, I challenged him to a debate. Remember, do you remember that? I actually, and, I actually, I told him about that. He, he, he turned it down. Yeah, but what I, what I, um, I certainly didn't approve of the methodology he used and the, and the process he used. And um, and you and I both know some other people who were. Uh, mentioned in that book who Dennis Kozlowski <laughs> also had problems with that. He's the Tycho guy for people that don't realize it went down. And, um, but mostly what I, I objected to in that book, um, it was called, um, why they do it right inside the mind yep. of, of the white collar criminal is that he conflate, he interviewed probably 20 or 30 people and then conflated them all and kind of Put it together as if he had the the um, he had he had solved the mystery of why 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 the white collar criminal does what he does or she does, and um, we know that 
these are human stories. These are very complex situations. And, and probably categorically, you could divide them up into, into areas. But I've come to know hundreds and hundreds, um, and some of, many of whom have been through our ministry. And, uh-huh. and, and not one of them, not one of them approximated the kind of lack of empathy, lack of caring um, that Soltis talked about in his book. In fact, in fact, almost to a one, people are ashamed and embarrassed and, and, and sad about their predicaments and, and willing to explore the, the depths of, of um, what happened to them. And, um, and I've never met Bernie Madoff. I've never communicated with him other than through you on that one issue. Right. But to have, um, to be accused of lack of reflection or lack of empathy at your own son's death and to have not disclosed that you were going to put that in a book is, right. to me, just the worst thing you could do. By a so, professor of ethics. That's what cracked me up. By a professor of ethics. That's right. And so... And, and look, he may have had. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I'm, this um, this interview is not about him, but it's certainly yeah. a t- touch point between us. And let me tell you something: they had a very loving family. The boys, um, Ruth, Bernie, and and they were um, all worked in the in the firm as well too. And the boys worshipped him. Mm. They thought he walked on water. The employees worshipped him, as I told you before. He ran it like a family and everything. So, you know, it's Bernie's not one dimensional caricature of a villain that you can say is a pure psychopath or whatever. Um, obviously, he's got all that stuff mixed in there, but it's not black and white. And, you know, you should not, you know, by. He would have been he would have shown more integrity. Um, the professor, if he'd said, you know, maybe Bernie is unable to express himself, and that's why he switched to the interest thing, interest rate discussion, or put it in a you know a more objective framework than misleading Bernie, and then using it as a great example of what a psychopath this guy is. You know. Yeah. Um, l- let's jump to your actual title of the book. Um, um, Madoff talks. Um, what's what's the subtitle? The uncovering the truth behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history. But so, do you have verbatim, uh, verbatim text from Bernie? Are, do, are you showing what he actually wrote to you and what? Yep. yep. I'm going to have. Uh, it is chock full of Bernie's exact words and quotes. And frankly, my interest was that nobody has looked at this. Uh, first of all, Bernie hasn't talked. Okay, uh, which obviously is new. Secondly. Nobody has put the whole architecture together because while the Ponzi scheme was one man, the failure of the system, and I'm talking about the SEC, I'm talking about Wall Street, I'm talking about CIPIC, I'm talking about the feeder funds, all of that stuff failed. And that hasn't, that architecture hasn't been shown put together, which is here's Bernie, here's his big four that were extorting him, and here's how the system failed. And McGraw Hill's interest, obviously, is that Bernie's never really spoken. So, you know, they, they, they want it full of as much Bernie uh, as you can. Sure. But I have built it 
so that the whole story is there. Because you're going to find the SEC failed badly. You're going to find SIPC failed badly. You're going to find the feeder fund guy should be in jail. You're going to find his bank, J.P. Morgan uh, Chase, failed. You're going to find the big four extorted him and didn't go to jail. You're going to hear about money laundering in Europe. There's a lot of, of this story that is beyond Bernie, too. You know, it's, it's interesting um, that I went to, you know, I went to prison for SBA loan fraud. And now, in the last four or five months, we're in an environment where people can understand big system failure. Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean that they didn't have the, uh, their motives weren't, weren't right, because I'm sure in many for the most part, it was. But anything that large and that complex, and if it's not, um, if it's not designed to um, to be more thorough than right. expedient, it's designed for speed, right? And so, um, I've talked about this on other podcasts, and I certainly talked about it with you. Um, it's very difficult. It was very difficult for years for me to express my contrition and to take responsibility, but also provide the framework of yeah. how the government was was yeah. moving a lot of money out post 9-11. And, um, and I, I certainly took advantage of that. But um, I need to be able to tell the story of how that happened and yeah. still accept absolute responsibility for my behavior. And so, uh, That's and, well put. Right. And so I did what I did. Um, but for 19 years, Jim, there was no way for me to describe anything that could even approximate the situation except now we have a situation that's so much larger than that right. and and people can understand and so um i think as far as i know i'm the only one who's out there uh, who's actually written articles saying i went to prison for sba loan fraud and has an organization that helps people through it so people are, are reaching out to me but the situation wasn't that different with the sec and it wasn't that different with yeah. large banks it was this big construct and they weren't they weren't looking to find the problems what they were looking was for success does that make sense is that yeah. right no yeah, yeah no and, and and by the way what you're saying is that what we're seeing right now is it's already coming out that the situation now with the ppp loans and stuff is very ripe for fraud and people under pressure, as you've talked about, families or whatever. There's a lot of misuse of that. There's a lot of fraud. There's a lot of firms that shouldn't be getting those loans um, that, are, that are getting their, lo their loans. But Madoff, the SEC actually failed five separate invest investigations, right? Now, think about it. If you're an investor, you don't, know really, you don't really understand what his strategy, which was called split-strike conversion, what it even means, right? But you've heard the SEC which stands for protecting you on Wall Street has investigated this five top time. So clearly the guy's clean, right? And, um, you know, so the system has a big uh, responsibility there. Not only that, they kept clearing them for the same thing that they kept investigating them for the same thing they cleared in the prior investigation. They weren't looking for Ponzi schemes. They were looking for front running and were saying, well, heck, you just cleared them of that. Why are you back with the same guys, you know, incompetent young guys? Um, and, and giving him another, uh, he, he just toyed with them, uh, you know, Bernie. So, and you know, so the system needs to take some responsibility too, which is what I'm happy to come up with 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 in, in the book. I have to say, J.P. Morgan looks very bad because they were his banker, right? Yeah. And I have to give them a lot of credit. I went to the chairman of uh, 
J.P. Morgan, who I know, and he didn't stonewall. He let his people talk to me. And it's not going to be very, uh, you know, that positive in the book. So I respect that. On the other hand, the trustee who brought in all this money back, so he's considered a hero, but brutalized a lot of people, he wouldn't speak to me. And um, he's put a billion bucks in his own pockets, you know, in, in, the, in his law firm's pockets. And I think he should talk. Well, we, we could probably have, uh, each of us yeah. could probably have a show on uh, trusteeship and receivership. It's a, yeah, yeah. it's a fascinating story. So when's the last time that you communicated with Bernie Madoff? Oh, by the way, uh, by, by the way, before you answer that, what I fa- I'm finding fascinating in this, in this, um, in this conversation, is that we use the terms Bernie and Madoff, um, because this is so iconic that that if you say Bernie, everybody knows what you're talking about, and if you say Madoff, everybody knows what you're talking about, and and so we have a lot of one name celebrities right share staying this guy's got this guy's got two (laughs) it's funny you say that because bernie was bringing in all this feeder fund money in europe as well and all the banks had these streams in and they all thought they had exclusives with bernie (laughs) and then the the whistleblowers are going around to each bank and they're saying we have this wizard and they go bernie oh yeah bernie how'd you know it was bernie and then then they go to the next bank and bernie and you didn't say anything, Bernie. And everybody's waking. We know he's cheating. He's doing something that isn't right. Um, he's our guy. And we're the only guys that can get you into this fund. And there were 14 banks in Europe, all of whom thought they had an exclusive with Bernie. It's crazy. So, tell, so when's the last time you, you communicated with him? Um, it's now been several m- months. It turns out, you know, I, I told you I had that couple of year gap while we figured out if we could sell the book or whatever. Yeah. I came back to him. I came back to him and I said, Bernie, um, I've got it now. Let's, and he said, well, you know, um, Ruth and the family doesn't want me to ever speak again. I got this, you know, he's got him. He's like Trump or Nixon is a better example, right? Nixon had to keep explaining himself right after it all happened. And they wanted him to shut up. So he really wasn't speaking anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. But as a favor to me, he was going to, you know, c- you know, continue to talk a little bit and I was going to come down and visit him and everything. And to just kind of no more real scoop stuff, but just, you know, keep the lines open. The prison vetoed it. Um, okay. So now there hasn't been communications in a while because I think he's very sick. Unless he, uh, you know, the rumor is that, you know, that he is dying. He tried to get the compassionate release that came out of the, uh, the Trump program, whatever that's called, first release or something. Or, yeah. Um, and, and whatever it is. And so I have not heard anything from him. Now, Ruth is also interesting because Ruth supported the book all along, right? Even mm-hmm. though she's incredibly private and she got Bernie to speak. I get the contract, sign it with McGraw-Hill. The next day I tell her and she says, I'm not going to talk. So, right. And after that, she didn't speak again, even though we were really close and everything. So she has not spoken to me um, basically since the contract started. And um, Bernie has, has spoken more recently, but he's out of touch now because I think of illness and he's not speaking anyway. In fact, in theory, hopefully this book is going to be the last uh, book that anybody has access to them because the family has really shut down all communications. But we'll see. Knock on wood. I- you can understand that. I mean, this, is, this was uh, an incredibly public display of... Uh, of uh, of a family's uh, disintegration, and yep. and um, I know Ruth Madoff, for example, has been 
there's been Ruth Madoff spottings in Old Greenwich going to uh, going to the bagel store. Yes. So, um, do you know that um, the uh, New York Post wrote an article saying that Ruth goes to the bagel store, right? The bagel shop. Yeah. And um, so Robert Guerrero owns it. Started getting letters for Ruth at the bagel shop. The people don't know how to reach her or anything. Yeah. So he told me he actually gives her the letters when they. When if you want to write the bagel shop in Old Greenwich. It'll get to Ruth eventually. Yeah. So we, we can give Upper Crust Bagels a plug right here on the, yeah, on the, on the podcast. We, we, we just did that. Yeah, we'll have yeah, to try yeah. get some advertising that's, to see revenue out of it. That's, that's one of the advantages of both living in the same town, I guess. Yeah. So, um, Jim, what, what have you learned? What have you learned about yourself? I mean, what's, what, this had to have changed you. I mean, you've devoted a lot of time, a lot of energy. Yeah. And... Um, and you live in a town that almost nothing is a surprise. Um, but this is bigger than anything anybody's ever seen. So how has it impacted you? And how have you changed because of it? You know, one thing that, I, that, that is interesting, and I don't know how I happen to get this, but I'm the only journalist, really, who the family has dealt with, right? And then, of course, there's all the folks that have gone, all the journalists, investigative reporters that have gone after Madoff. And um, and so that has really been a whole, um, a huge experience. And being basically honest on both sides of the equation, right, with the family and, and uh, with them. And people are going to, nobody has made an assessment of whether the boys and Ruth did or did not know how much they knew, mm. how were they involved, were they involved? And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make a determination uh, in the book in uh, chapter eight out of uh, 10 chapters. And you will see that um, uh, I, I was having to do, I was investigating right up until the end. Um, open, open, open issue. So, um, um, you know, what is, what has uh, changed me probably is first off the failure of the system, um, you know, shakes you, um, the degree of that, um, the scope of this thing, uh, the victims that I've dealt with, um, that changes you. You also, I try to finish in the end, not only with reforms needed on the system side, but also on individuals. You can't invest and give your money just based on trust or just because you heard Jeff Grant does is a good investor and we don't know what the hell Jeff, how he does it, but just give your money to Jeff, right? Don't give your money to someone like that. Make sure the assets exist. Um, diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Everybody put their eggs in one basket, right? Simplify. Don't do, don't invest in anything that you don't understand. Don't invest in anything where they tell you it's guaranteed, especially if it's a market driven product. Yeah. Right, it can't be by definition. It, it can't be guaranteed. You can make nine percent over time in a low cost fund that mirrors the stock exchange, right? Because that's the stock exchange uh, has earned nine percent average for a hundred years. Okay, so you're going to have ten years that are bad in a row, maybe, but over a hundred years, it's going to make nine percent. Sure, you're going to have no fees. You're going to you're going to sleep at night. You don't have to find out if Jeff Grant is a crook or not. You know, <laughs> so all. all, all Let's use, let's use a different name, Jim. <laughs> You'll probably have guys calling you tomorrow to give you their money, you know. <laughs> so, you know, Bernie, I mean, literally, people were literally saying, um, I don't know what he's doing. 
I don't know how he does it. Everybody tells me it's good. It's good, you know. And then you had guys that said, I know he's cheating. I know he's doing front. They didn't know what he was doing. I know it's front running or it's something along those lines. Um, and I don't want to know, you know. Sure. And um, affinity fraud is a huge deal, which is what this was. It was mm -hmm. targeted at the Jewish community, mm -hmm. uh, his network, charities, universities, uh, people from rather unsophisticated, non-wealthy right up until, you know, uh, hedge funds, um, etc. Now, I learned also that, um, uh, you know, to get a project like this done is a pretty big deal. It, okay. You know, as I said, it was 150,000 words. Um, it was, I started off having no idea what I'm doing. Then I was floundered, you know, then I sort of figured out that I did feel like comfortable. I had the whole story that I understood it, but I had to translate it. Then I had to fight the publisher because I had this vision that we needed to have the whole story, not just Bernie's quotes, right? Particularly because Bernie doesn't tell the truth a whole lot of the time. Right. Uh, but I know that was the sex appeal to them. But to me, the story is how the system let folks down, how you need to take care of your own uh, independent judgment responsibility before you depend on the system. What really happened with Bernie? What was the real story? And uh, how did he keep it going for so long? And all that kind of mm -hmm. kind of stuff. You'll you'll see. We have a chapter on how he kept this thing going for forty years. Then we have a chapter for how they uncovered it, how they did the reverse engineering. So you'll see. You'll see the. You'll get the characters of the guys that worked for him on the seventeenth floor. Frank D. Pascali, his right hand man, a high school education. His lawyer called him Madoff Sammy the Bull Gravano, and the chief fraud perpetuating officer. This guy was high school educated, but totally brilliant. He lied all day for 33 years, and he kept this thing going. There's all kinds of characters. Annette Bongiorno was his administrative assistant doing all the fake backdating and everything. She had a $58 million in her IRA by the time she claimed after 40 years she didn't know what the Dow Jones Industrial Average meant. And, um, and 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 she her, her last year's salary and bonus was six hundred and forty thousand dollars. So the story it's just the cast of characters. Uh, it's a fascinating tale, um, and of course Bernie Madoff is just an unbelievable uh, human being. Now we we laughing now incredibly tragic. Oh, you know, of his course. family family of course. disintegrated suicides. Um, Nineteen point five billion dollars people lost to their money. They thought they had sixty. Five billion dollars, right? Um, in, that it had grown to that, so they thought they lost sixty-five billion dollars. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So, um, Jim, the book's going to come out next summer, so in a year from now. So. Uh, well, in, in twenty twenty-one, I hope. I hope before next summer. Okay. So in twenty twenty-one, and um, so this is really a sneak peek. We'll have you on um, Criminal Justice Insider podcast when the book breaks. So uh, we'll be able Great. to we'll be able to get it. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, up to date, but let's assume that um, Bernie Madoff uh, survives long enough in prison because he's apparently, according to his lawyers, at least he's. Um, they said he was only has eighteen months left to live. Right. Um, right. Right. But let's assume he lives long enough to get a copy of the book and to read it. <laughs> What do you think that he will think about your book? Um, well, first of all, I, I say that uh, 
he accepted the terms that I wrote it on, and he's probably not going to be very happy with the results. Mm. And um, I don't, I don't even know if at this stage of his life, whether what his, what his health is, will he will he read a four hundred page book? And I, I don't know. It's one of the things I talked about. The forensic guy is, hey Bernie, it's over, it's done. Admit what the frig you did. He's, he, you know, he still won't admit yeah. that you know that it was a Ponzi scheme from day one. All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't think that'll ever change. Um, I think he'll feel I let him down. I, I don't, I, you know, I don't really know. Um, he may like the stuff about his family that, you know, if they come out of chapter eight in one piece, which people will find out when they read it. But um, I don't know. And obviously I'll send him a book if he's still alive. I, I sent him, uh, somebody else wrote a book and I can't remember now who it was, but I, oh, um, Helen Chapman, who you may know. Yeah. Uh, I sent I sent him Helen's book and he read it, you know, um, he he ripped her to shreds, but um, I, Bernie's I, never going to. He's never complained to himself. I don't believe. I, I think people would be comforted and would be attracted to your book, knowing that um, he might not like it. Uh, that 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 you that you strive to tell the truth. And Although that, people will find that out. People right, will find trust, right. trust me. There will be, there's going to be no. It's not. It's not. There's no apologia, um, you know, for for Madoff and the fact that it's Madoff talks. It's going to come out pretty. I I personally, uh, when I was doing it, I thought he was going to come out better, right? Because I was yeah. hearing all of his side, and he was he was admitting the, the criminal stuff and all this other stuff he was telling me. Unfortunately, it didn't hang together. So he's not going to come out well, uh, well uh, because of that. And, um, I, you know, I really appreciated that, for instance, the victims knew I was talking to them, right? Yeah. And obviously, um, and none of them had any problem because they, they knew me by then that I'm going to call it straight. You know, I'm yeah. going to stick up for uh, Madoff. Mm-hmm. Now, to be honest, I, I wouldn't really, uh, you know, Madoff Talks is what I named the book, right? But that was when I started with Madoff, right? By the time I'd learned the whole story and all the systemic stuff, I, I really honestly wouldn't use that title. Because I think it does give what you say, but you know McGraw Hill—that's what they want. So, yeah, and they're, they're the boss. <laughs> I, I I've been involved in that so often. I get I get um, asked to speak, and then I say, "What's the topic?" And they say, "Well, we just want the blood and guts." Yeah, and they yeah. Say, I said, "Yeah, well, you know, I've spent I'm I'm home 13 years from prison. I've done all this great stuff, and they go, yeah, we don't really want to know that. We want to, yeah, we want the, we want the blood and guts." See, they're going to find out, which they don't really know yet. My editor is, you know, when they hear you're going to write about the SEC's failure, who cares about it? That's boring stuff. They're going to find that story unbelievable. The incompetence, it's just the story, that, that is awesome. They'll find J.P. Morgan. They'll find the feeder fund stuff. They're going to find the, all that stuff almost beyond belief. So I think they'll be interested. Now, one thing that's going to be interesting is that my mind can kind of absorb that. And I think there's a feeling that the average guy really wants a very concise one main storyline and obviously yeah. you can tell this has got some multiple storylines some sublines so it'll be interesting to see if mcgraw hill digests the whole thing and if the market is able to digest that but i, I wouldn't really be capable of writing a, you know a totally simplistic you know black and white uh story and apparently that's what a lot of people like to read the other thing was they, they don't think people read anymore more than 200 pages, which blows me away. You know, I said, this is an investigative book on made up. You can't do what I was wanted to do in 200 pages, you know. 
So we'll find out if people will read 400 pages or not. Yeah. If not, Jeff, I hope you'll buy 10,000 copies yourself. It'll be certainly interesting to see if, um, if how people picture Madoff in order to buy the book. Is it the Richard Dreyfus Madoff? Is it the De Niro Madoff? I mean, the, and, this is an impossible story to uh, encapsulate in a, in a, in a, in a two hour movie, for example. Movie. By the way, you'll probably, this might surprise you. I have not watched either of those. I didn't want to. I don't, I felt like once I was inside the family that it's just, I didn't really have no interest in it. So I, in the book, I have a response from Bernie on the, I think it's, it's Dreyfus one. And he, he, he refutes all the stuff that's in there about, uh, you know, that he, that he hit his brother apparently and stuff like that. And, um, he hung his brother out to drive Peter Madoff, but I have never watched him mm. and I'm not really going to watch him. So yeah. we'll see. Jim, thank you so much. This is, uh, this was a, a great, great conversation. And, uh, I will, uh, I'll definitely keep you up to date as to, uh, what the, um, uh, what the metrics are people, uh, who, who, uh, who watch it or listen to it, because I think that this is, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be interested in it. I think a lot of people are going to be interested in your book. And uh, you're a fascinating guy into yourself. And uh, I'm very grateful to you for everything you've done. Yeah, well, I, you know, I love doing business with you. I love, it's always great. And, and I do hope people read it. There's a lot of firsts in the book. And there's a great story in the book. And I, and I appreciate that you're going to help me get it out there uh, starting even now. So I look right. forward to seeing what, what, you, what you edit this into. And uh, we'll run it on our, our deal as well. That's great. Thank you, Jim. Have a wonderful Thank day. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.